because we have some um, company from it was Seattle and now they're living in Texas and they weren't supposed to come until next weekend and now they're here this weekend and I leave here I get to go listen to a one and a half and a three year old so it has not been quiet the last 24 hours I'm so excited Thought you could tell. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to be in First um, John, the second chapter. A few year, a few weeks ago, we were in the first chapter of First John, and today we're going to get through about maybe two thirds of the chapter don't quite have enough time I don't think to do the whole chapter but I don't feel badly about it since Bill hasn't been able to get through Philippians in two years so. <laughs> in Philippians or you oh, okay anyway just sort of a brief recap from first John the first chapter and, and some of the things that, that we talked about the book was written by the Apostle John and at the time of the writing of this book he's an old man probably in his 80s and um, just like so many of the letters that were written written in the New Testament and just like the atmosphere throughout the world at that time and we see the same thing today there were so many different religions and so many different thought patterns and uh, ways of worship and most of them or so often they became mixtures from all these different religions and all these different forms of worship and it's actually called syncretism where you mix this one with this one and you come up with a polygot of all different trains of thoughts and all kinds of religions but at this particular time there were a lot of heretical teachings that had risen concerning Jesus and this is in the area called Asia Minor a lot of that's called Turkey today but at the time uh, the name that was given to it was Asia Minor and in effect so many of these false teachers restated the gospel and they had it fit in with their own thought patterns and sort of adjusted it to say different things from what the gospel actually says so much of the thought pattern at the time was what was called dualistic and what this really means is that um, they pictured the world in, when it says dualistic terms, it, they, they look at the world in two ways. Matter, the physical, what you can see, and the spirit. And essentially, the physical matter was evil, and the spiritual was good. 
and there couldn't be any co people coexistence between the two. So when you get this, this means that there could be no direct connection between God, who is spiritual, and spirit, and matter, which is evil, because God would never touch anything that's evil. And so, obviously, if this is true, then the biblical doctrine of creation is wrong. It had to go, because the supreme God would never create something that's evil. So you get rid of the, the biblical doctrine of creation. The world must have been created by some lesser God, and that's what they thought. You also have to get rid of the biblical doctrine, doctrine of the resurrection because the climax in their thought was the redemption of the soul from the body. So the, the greatest thing that could happen would be the liberation of the soul from the body, not a resurrection and a new body. Why would you want to have a new body because the body's evil to start with? So you've got to get rid of the biblical doctrine of the resurrection. One of the major heretical groups, the Docetists, which comes from the Greek word which means to seem, and they followed this line of reasoning and they said Jesus could not have been a real person because God would never inhabit a human body because a human body is physical. He just seemed to have a real body. He was really not there. He was really a phantom. If you touched him, you couldn't. And so in the first chapter of First John, what does John say? He says that we've seen him, we've touched him, we've talked to him. And he says all these things to prove you gossipers don't know what you're talking about. You know, We've been there and we've felt him. And he says, we proclaim all of this to you. Acts 19 tells about Paul's time at Ephesus. And in verse 10 of Acts 19, it says this. This took place for two years so that all that lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. At this time, the seven churches of Revelation were established and other churches besides. And again, as always happens, many different kinds of thought and religions came together, and the Christians in this area were effective too. When Paul left Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem, this is what he said, again in the book of Acts. He said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in, among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, many will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. A little bit later, Paul writes the letter to the Colossians to address the Colossian heresy. And the Colossian heresy said different things. They honored certain days above other things. They abstained from certain foods and drinks to appease various spiritual forces, and they worshiped angels. 
And so Paul addresses this in Colossians a few years later, after what he says in Ephesus. And finally, you see the end of this false teaching mixed with Christianity. Paul says in his last letter in 2 Timothy 1.15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. And now John, a few years later, is in the same area. He's in Asia. And he's battling against the propaganda of the false teachers. He says things like, These things have I written to you concerning them that seduce you. He says, Little children, let no man deceive you. He calls them false prophets, deceivers, antichrists. His great emphasis, John's great emphasis, is on the difference between genuine Christians and all the spurious, all the false ideas and people that call themselves Christians that are out there, and how to tell the difference between the two. The first two verses of First John, the second chapter. <coughs> it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. If you read the last verse or two of the chapter before, John says things like, If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we say we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so now John begins to write, and he opens with my little children. Because that's how he views these people that he has been discipling in all these different churches. And what's amazing and apropos is the fact that this is the same way that Jesus addressed his disciples in the upper room just before they left for the Last Supper. Because just after Judas departed, Jesus addresses his disciples and he says, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. And now John is addressing his disciples in exactly the same way. Little children. He also uses this phrase because he's about to give them a warning. In these verses before, he had talked about if anyone says he hasn't sinned, he's a liar, and things of this nature. And it's easy to twist these words, and some of the people did this, some of the false teachers, because, first of all, if in this life we can never be done with sin, why are we striving after holiness? If there's no way that we can ever get rid of all of our sin, why bother? And some people were asking this question. And a second question, 
if escape from sin is so easy, if all you have to do is say, Jesus, forgive me. If it's so easy, what's the big deal without, about falling into sin? Sin is no big deal since we have the blood of Jesus to cleanse us, which is what some people will say. So why bother? You know, it's no big deal. I'll just ask for forgiveness and everything's okay. What John is saying is that sin is not a natural occurrence for Christian life. And you are to be on guard against it. In fact, sin is so completely uncharacteristic of the Christian life that a life marked by sin cannot be called Christian. But then he says, but if you do commit a sin, don't sin, but if you do, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate is someone that's called to your side. It's someone who champions your cause before a judge. And he says, with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. And with the Father means facing the Father. So Jesus, in effect, faces the Father with the sinner and the sinner's sin. One translator says that the solemn thought is that we stand or that the saints stand or excuse me, the saints sin stand before the Lord and Jesus has to face God with the sinner and with his sin, the one that he has saved with his precious blood. And if we can have that thought in our mind, how strongly should that deter us from sin? Because we're causing Jesus to stand with us and our sin facing the Father with the one that has died so that we don't sin. And this thought should be a deterrent in our heart always against sin. And it says that Jesus is the propitiation of our sin. He's the satisfaction for the demands of the broken law. God's wrath against sin has to be somehow turned away if we're to be forgiven. And it's turned away by the substitutionary death of Jesus. Verses 3 through 6. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Pretty serious words, aren't they? And First John is very simple on the surface, but it's very deep if you bother to stop and think about it. How can we be sure that we know him? And John says only if we obey him can we claim to know Jesus. 
It's not enough to understand the theory. You have to put it into practice. If we say that no one that can know God because no one is perfectly obedient, then we really need to understand that what it means is that those who strive to form their life after Christ are the ones that know him. Because we know that no one is perfectly obedient. But it's the one that strives with his heart and with his being to know God. If a man says he's come to know God and disobeys his commandments, he's a liar. His conduct contradicts his word, and he's false. Verse 5 says, whoever keeps his word. And John is attacking, attacking these heretical Gnostics at the time who thought they had exclusive knowledge. These Gnostics that thought they had all this knowledge that was superior to everybody else. They were the ones in the know. They were the inner circle. And John says that anyone who continually keeps God's word has the love of God completed in him. No special group, no inner circle, anyone who continually keeps God's word. In the first chapter of 1 John, we were told that no one who walks in darkness can have fellowship with the God of light. And now we're told that the character of God will be displayed in everyone that abides in him. And we don't have to speculate about God's character because Jesus showed God's character the whole time he was on earth. It was manifested in the life and the conduct of Jesus. Verses 7 and 8. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. So what is it? He says, I'm writing an old commandment. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment. Is it old? Is it new? It's both. It's old because Jesus is not telling them, or John rather, is not telling them anything they haven't heard since the beginning of their Christian experience. When Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment of all, he quoted Deuteronomy 6.5, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And then he added to it Leviticus 19.9 at 19.18, which says, You're to love your neighbor as yourself. That's an old commandment. It's centuries old. It was taught from the beginning. From the very beginning of their Christian experience, from the very beginning of the time of Moses, it was taught. They knew the commandment, and in that sense it was old. Yet there's also a sense in that it's new. Jesus summed up these words from the Old Testament again 
in the upper room just before he left. And he spoke to his disciples and he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus called it a new commandment to his disciples when they left the upper room just prior to the crucifixion. And he called it new because he fulfilled it. He gave it a depth of meaning it had never had before. A disciple is to love others, not just as he loves himself, but in the same manner as Christ loved him, with selfless, sacrificial love. It was a new teaching for a new age. It was because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. It's new because we belong to the light. It's new because we're not in darkness anymore. It's experiential. We walk it by experience, in practice. Walking as Christ walked is putting into practice the old commandment and it's new every day. So it's not a contradiction. John's not stuttering. He knows what he's saying. Verses 9 through 11. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness unto now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm not sure that anyone hasn't had trouble with that from time to time. The new age, and the new age took place, of course, when Jesus came. And it brings a new distinction to the commandment to love. The calling to obedience is a test of love. Claiming to be in the light is a claim, really, to have fellowship with the Lord. In 1 John 6, John says, Claiming to have fellowship with God and walking in darkness is impossible. It's a lie. And here John says claiming to be in the light to have fellowship with God is impossible if you hate your brother. Light and love go together. Darkness and hate go together. The Gnostics claimed to be in the light, but they hated their brother. And John says they're liars. It can't be done. We're either in the light or we're in the darkness. There's no twilight. John sees life in terms of black and white. There are no gray areas. So if you want somebody that's black and white, you read John. There's no in-between. 
You're either in one camp or the other. You're not in between. The thrust of verse 11 says that the penalty of living in the darkness is not just that you can't see, but that you go blind. Refusing to walk in the light means your eyes become atrophied. They become useless because you don't use them correctly and you actually become blind. Just like not using a muscle, you lose it. You become unable to see. If we love people, we see how to avoid sinning against them. Hatred distorts our perspective. It blinds us. Verses 12 through 14. We're going to go through 17. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have someone, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you children because you know the father. I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. The tone changes in John's letter. And it changes in these verses because John doesn't want the readers to think that he doubts the reality of their Christian faith. It's the false teachers that are in darkness and that are blind. And John wants to take away the false assurance of the counterfeit Christians, but he wants to confirm the genuine Christians. So he makes six statements about genuine Christians. The first three statements say, I'm writing to you. And the last three, I have written to you. He first writes, and then he confirms what he's already written. He divides his readers into three groups. Their little children, their fathers, and their young men. And he addresses each group twice. And John's not referring to their physical age. He's referring to the stages of their spiritual development. The little children are those newborn in Christ. The young men are more developed Christians, strong and mighty in spiritual warfare. And the fathers possess a depth and stability of mature Christian experience. The little children have had their sins forgiven. Their sins have been put away from them permanently for Christ's sake. Furthermore, they've come to know the Father. These are the earliest thoughts and understandings of a newborn Christian. Their earliest experiences. The Holy Spirit within them wakes them up that they're a son, and they cause them to say, Abba, Father, just like Paul talks about. You know, it's a diminutive, it's a, an endearing way of addressing God. 
this new Christian rejoices in the forgiveness of the sin in Christ and in his fellowship with God. The fathers are the spiritually adult in the church. Their first rush of joy and knowing forgiveness and fellowship is in a time long ago in a lot of cases. Even the, br- the battles of the young men are to a degree in the past for the adults. The fathers have progressed into a deeper communion with God. Both times that John addresses the fathers, he was, they were identical words that he uses. He says, you know him who has been from the beginning. The verb is the same that he uses when he says little children have known him. All Christians, mature and immature, they've come to know God. But the knowledge of God deepens for the adult. The little children know him as father. The fathers have come to know him as the one that was from the beginning, the immutable, unchangeable, eternal God. There's a deepening of their understanding of who God is as they mature in Christ in their Christian experience. And the knowledge of the fathers is gained by living in fellowship with the Lord over a number of years, many years. It is a knowledge gained by experience. And in between, the little children and the fathers are the young men who are active in the battle of Christian living in fighting the enemy. Both times John says they have overcome the evil one. How have they done this? John says they are strong because the word of God abides in them. You want to be strong? You want to overcome the enemy? It's because the word of God abides in you. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know Jesus is who he says he is? because the word of God abides in you. You want to chase away despair? Only if the word of God abides in you. It won't happen any other way. I testify and have seen it, have been there. It won't happen any other way. You want to know why you're a Christian now and you weren't before? You know more now than you did before? It's because the word of God abides in you. It won't happen any other way. It won't happen because you meditate on the flowers or on the sky or on the trees. It'll happen because the Word of God abides in you. They've grasped the Christian revelation. They're seeking to conform their lives to Christ's commands. The young men. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. It's also possible that that John may have been referring to their overcoming the Antichrist false teaching at the time, which was diabolical, which was trying to destroy the church. The expanded and amplified Greek translation of the 14th verse reads like this. 
I write to you fathers because you have come to know experientially the one who is from the beginning and are as a present result possessors of that knowledge. I write to you young men because you are strong with endowed strength and the word of God in you is abiding and you have gained the victory over the wicked one and as as a present result of standing on his neck. <laughs> Verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The world that John's talking about is not the created world because the Bible says God so loved the world. The world he's talking about is the world system that Satan controls. The world system that appeals to the fallen sinful nature. I want what you've got. I want more than you've got. Why don't I have it and you do? I want to be stronger than I am. I want to be richer than I am. I want to be more powerful than I am, and I don't care if I have to get you out of the way to get it. That's the world system. Mm -hmm. And the world system's oriented against God. Mm -hmm. To share any kind of political or social or economic philosophies that are not consistent with God's love is worldly love. It's not godly love. <clears throat> the Christian is to love God and to love his brother, but he's to hate the world. He's not to love the world, not the world system. Love for the world and love for the Father are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. We're told not to love the world because love is not an uncontrollable emotion. We can't say, well, I just don't feel love. You can make yourself love because love is an act of the will. And we all need to remember that sometimes. It's an act of the will. I don't love her anymore. I don't love him anymore. I don't love this anymore. Well, it's an act of the will. I didn't say it's an easy act of the will, but it's an act of the will. If a man is set on the pursuit of things of this world, it's evident that he doesn't have any love for the Father. James 4, 4 says, the friendship of the world is enmity with God. It's against God. Some of John's readers were still loving the world, the world that they'd been called out of. And John says, stop considering the world 
precious with the result that you love it. Stop considering the world precious with the result that comes from that that you love the world. The lust of the flesh describes the desire of our fallen and sinful nature. It's the passionate desire or the craving that comes from our evil nature. Flesh doesn't mean the physical body, except as the body conforms to the desire of our evil nature. To say that the physical body itself is evil is Gnosticism. It's saying that the, anything material is wicked. It's a heresy that says matter itself is evil, which is not because God created it to begin with, and he's restoring it. The, uh, the loss of the eye seems to indicate temptations that result not from within, but from without through the eyes. This is a tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things without examining their true value. Eve's view of the forbidden fruit was a delight to the eyes. David's lustful look at Bathsheba while she was bathing, for example. It's been, the lust of the eyes has been called the love of beauty divorced from the love of goodness. the pride of life. It's an arrogance related to our external circumstances. Whether it's your perceived position, your wealth, your dress, your IQ, it's the desire to shine above other people, to outshine other people. It's an empty grasping after the things that serve our fallen nature. And the only effective antidote to worldliness is to have our hearts so filled with God's love that it doesn't have any room for the love of, of anything else, anything that's incompatible with that love. Want another reason for not setting your love on the world? It's that the new age has arrived and this present age is doomed. The world in all its darkness is already disintegrating. Don't think so, look around. Don't think it's disintegrating. And men with a lust that's worldly are going to pass away along with it. The same choice that confronted the people that John wrote to confronts us today. God of the world, or more plainly, the lust of the world or the will of God. It'll help if we can remember that the, while the world and its lust are temporary, God's will and those that do it are eternal. Second Corinthians 4.18 says, For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal.
Lord, how can we love you and walk in darkness? How can we love you and hate our brother? Your word says it's impossible. It doesn't say anything about degrees. It says it either is or it is not. And you say the things of this world are passing away. And you call us, Lord, to walk with you. What hold should wickedness and darkness have over people of the light? Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, that our hearts would uh, be separated from all the impurities of this world that try to draw us back to it. Pray that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus and that you would just strengthen us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. to go listen to some one and a half and three year olds. Excitement. Watch your mouth out with soap. <laughs> <laughs> they talked about the little children, Greg. So yes. <laughs>